Welcome to the Global Research News Hour in the summer. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and occupied in Ishinabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the traditional territories of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. My name is Michael Welch. What follows is the fourth and final installment of our series on the four great assassinations of the 1960s period. His name was Malcolm X. Born Malcolm Little in May of 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska, his Baptist lay father and mother were active in the Universal Negro Movement, attracting the negative attention of white racist groups one of which burned down the family home when they moved to Lansing, Michigan. The father was killed when he was six years old and his mother hospitalized from a nervous breakdown in 1938, leaving Malcolm living in a series of foster homes or with relatives. He engaged in illicit activities and was eventually sentenced to 10 years in prison in 1946. It was in that prison that Malcolm converted to Islam and joined the Nation of Islam and once paroled in 1952, served as the face of the organization for a dozen years. Over time, he was well established for pronouncing black empowerment. However, Malcolm X became disillusioned with the Nation of Islam in the 1960s and a disconnect erupted with the leader, Elijah Muhammad. As he persevered and traveled across Africa, he founded the Islamic Muslim Mosque, Incorporated, and the Pan-African Organization of Afro-American Unity. All the while, he was known to be monitored by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Tensions grew during 1964, and Malcolm had even received death threats. On February 21, 1965, during his appearance at the Autobahn Ballroom in Manhattan, people in the audience armed with a sawed-off shotgun and two semi-automatic pistols shut down his advocacy for racial justice. This assassination is quite a bit different from the other three in that Malcolm X, revered as a popular figure within the human rights movement, was also a figure who disagreed with Martin King on the virtue of nonviolence and racial integration. And certainly there is a little dispute about the role played by the Nation of Islam. However, that does not mean that once again the FBI and the CIA had a role concealed in the background and the role is more substantial than might be immediately apparent. Taking us on an expedition through this figure's journey and his demise we are joined once more by the researcher, historian, and major investigator of the assassinations of the 1960s, James Eugenio. He's the author of Destiny Betrayed, expanded in 2012, JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, in 2018, and co-editor with Lisa Pease of the Assassinations Probe magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X, published in 2003. So here is again is our final chapter with James Eugenio on the Global Research News Hour. 
Eugenio. It's, it's good to have you again on the show. We're talking about Malcolm X, and, and he definitely drew a lot of attention to the public, wouldn't you say? Well, the Malcolm, the, the Malcolm X case, um, the only time it really got a kind of burst of publicity was when Spike Lee's movie uh, came out. In my opinion, it's, it's, it doesn't get the attention, you know, that it, it really merits, all right, because, you know, you had the series of four assassinations, the JFK case, the Malcolm X case, the King case, and finally, the Robert Kennedy case, all right? And those four assassinations, pretty much, if you ask me, pretty much wiped out the left in this country, <laughs> okay, in the space of five years, all right? You, 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 at one time, you had a country led by those four people, and then after that, you had a country led by the likes of LBJ, Nixon, Henry Kissinger, and John Mitchell, okay? And it all happened in a very, very short, you know, collapsed piece of time. All right. So, you know, the Malcolm X case does not get, I believe, you know, the attention that it deserves. I'm not going to go into all the reasons why I think that's such. Um, and one reason is he was not the sympathetic kind of character that, you know, that that King was. All right. He was more or less perceived as a black militant, you know, black nationalism, uh, that kind of thing, all right? But there are some authors who have written some pretty good material on the Malcolm X case, and, and, and a couple of them are Carl Evans, uh, who wrote a book called The Judas Factor, and Zach Kondo, who wrote a book called Conspiracies, Zach Kondo's a professor at Bowie College, I believe. And Carl Evans used to be a reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, Evans also importantly wrote a book about Elijah Muhammad, uh, the messenger. All right. Now, it's you can't really understand the Malcolm X case unless you understand how J. Edgar Hoover was utterly obsessed with the whole idea of what he called the rise of a black messiah, okay, in the United States, all right? Now, nobody, including me, understands just why Hoover was so obsessed with this idea, all right? But there's no doubt that he was. And a large part of what we call the COINTELPRO programs were addressed to this serious problem, okay? And it's very, very puzzling, all right, as to, you know, why this was the case, but we can't deal with the whys. We have to deal with what, what, what actually so this happened. This guy was more than just a, a racist, in other words, right? Well, I think that's one big part of the problem, yes. Okay, but 
Hoover, it's one thing to be a racist. It's another thing to go to the extremes that J. Edgar Hoover did, okay, in, in, in these cases that we're talking about. And, you know, by that, I'm, I mean the Black Panthers, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X. As we'll see, it appears to be that the guy that the FBI had on Malcolm was a guy named John Ali, who we'll, we'll talk about later. But there were also, according to Carl Evans, there were also some informants in the camp of the Nation of Islam, all right, who they could rely upon for solid information, all right? And there, according to Evans, there were probably three people inside the Nation of Islam, all right? So what happens is that once Malcolm becomes the main minister for the Nation of Islam in New York City, all right, that what happens is that he begins to attract, he has, he had this incredible speaking style and you can see it on YouTube. Okay. You know, if, if, if you, if you've never seen it before, he was a mesmerizing speaker. All right. And he began to attract huge crowds, both at his mosque and in the street. There's there's one time that that the crowd estimate was fifteen thousand people, all right, which is really something considering that the Nation of Islam was not a widespread kind of religious group. It was very narrow, okay, and very constricted in their beliefs, all right. And so what happens then, of course, is that in the late fifties. The FBI begins to launch a COINTELPRO and their strategy is going to be that we're going to try, and, and this is what they always do, all right? We're going to try and create a split between Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad, who is the main leader, okay? All right, and so, and, th and by the way, one reason for this is that it looks like at this time, like about 1958, it looks like at this time that Malcolm will be the heir apparent to Elijah Muhammad, all right? Because Elijah Muhammad had these health problems, which forced him to leave uh, Chicago and go into the Southwest to Arizona. All right. And so one of their memos actually says the secret to disabling the Nation of Islam movement, therefore, lays in neutralizing Malcolm X. All right. They actually said that. All right. Now. In addition to the FBI, the New York Police Department now begins to fear Malcolm X also, because there was a case in 1957 where Johnson Hinton 
who was a Noi member, you know, had been beaten up and taken into the 28th precinct, okay? And what happens is that Malcolm fears that he will be killed there, so he calls in what is called the fruit of Islam, which is the militant part of the nation of Islam, surrounds the precinct, and he asks to have Kenton taken to the hospital, all right? There were literally hundreds of these fruit of Islam soldiers outside, okay? All right? And so the police department wisely decided, okay, uh, we'll, we'll take him to the hospital. And he dismissed and the fruit of Islam. And it was, it was a very, very fearful showing. And by the way, this is depicted in Spike Lee's movie very well. Okay, that, that whole incident with, with Hinton. And so the New York Police Department now begins to suspect that Malcolm is going to be a problem. Now, something very interesting happens around this time. John Lee is living with Malcolm in New York, okay? There's a raid on Malcolm's house, all right? And... He's there. Malcolm's there with his family as well, his wife and kids, right? Yes, right. That's correct. All right. All right. And they're living, they're cohabitating in a house under the auspices of the Nation of Islam. And there's a police raid on Malcolm's house, all right, in which I think they arrested both Malcolm's wife and John Ali's wife, all right? All right. And... They're brandishing guns and everything. It's a very terrible scene. All right. And this ends up going to court. The criminal charges are dismissed. All right. And the, uh, they file a lawsuit, which is settled out of court against the NYPD. All right. Now, at this point, Malcolm doesn't know who John Lee is. All right. All right. He's not going to know for a few years later. All right. But... He makes a very bad mistake, and he recommends that John Ali be the secretary of Elijah Muhammad, all right, which moves John Ali into a strong position of power in the uh, headquarters of the Nation of Islam, which is in Chicago at that time, all right? So now, what this means, of course, is that John Ali is now in a perfect position to go ahead and sow this dissent between Malcolm in New York and Elijah Muhammad, who's moving to Arizona. So he's in a very central point in, in order to do this. So he's passing right. disinformation to both sides, in other words, right? Right, right, all right. Now, there's two main disputes that develop between Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad. One is that Malcolm wants the fruit of Islam to be a, not so much of a militant core, 
he wants it to be an activist court. In other words, he doesn't want the Nation of Islam to be perceived as a black, a completely black nationalist movement. All right. He wants it to be more of an outreach kind of a movement. He doesn't want people to be afraid of them. He wants them to have respect for them, but he also wants them to begin organizing, okay, and trying to go ahead and expand the movement outward. All right. That's one big dispute that Malcolm had with Elijah Muhammad. The other one is that Malcolm now be begins to see that John Ali is beginning to marginalize him in the Muhammad Speaks newspaper, all right, coming out of Chicago, all right? And so he now begins to suspect that there's really going to be a problem now, all right, in the upper ranks of the Nation of Islam. Now, the other thing that happens a little bit later is that Malcolm now begins to see that Elijah Muhammad is not the great guy that he thought he was, all right? He begins to suspect that there's a lot of corruption going on in Chicago, a lot of enrichment of Elijah Muhammad and his family at the expense of the Nation of Islam. And he also begins to hear these rumors that Elijah Muhammad is fathering these children with the secretaries in the Nation of Islam and having kids born out of wedlock, all right? All right, and now, see, because of this, because of this, because of these disputes, the FBI now begins to ratchet up their whole COINTELPRO program because now they have great excuses to do this with. Okay, so now they begin to send fake letters to Elijah Muhammad, you know, signed by Malcolm X, which he did, he never wrote. Okay, you know, talking about these problems, you know, why are you doing this with these poor women, these secretaries, okay, that kind of thing. And that, of course, goes ahead and raises the ante upward. All right, all right. And so what happens is that now... Elijah Muhammad is more or less looking for a reason to suspend Malcolm X, all right? And of course, everyone knows what most people should know. This happens over the Kennedy assassination, right. all right? Yeah. All right, and so what happens is that Malcolm makes a kind of unfortunate quote I think this is about a week after the Kennedy assassination. It's December the 1st, 1963, in which he tries to say that somehow what Kennedy's assassination was is a continuation of things like Lumumba, all right, et cetera, the assassination attempts against Castro, 
and he calls it the chickens coming home to roost. All right. Which was a very kind of, you know, insensitive and unfortunate thing for him to say. All right. And so Elijah Muhammad seizes on this as the reason to go ahead and suspend Malcolm for 90 days. Originally, it was going to be 90 days. And in fact, the FBI tries to capitalize on this by going ahead and visiting Malcolm at this time. And Malcolm actually taped a conversation because he understood what they were doing. Okay, they were trying to enlist him, you know, against Elijah Muhammad, okay, which he was not going to do at that time. It, All right. it seems like, like now, you're, you're talking about uh, basically the nation of Islam. I mean, it was the ones that, that carried out the, the final operation against uh, Malcolm X, although it was the, the FBI essentially kind of maneuvering things on, on, on yes, the, in yes. the background. See, that's why Zach Kondo calls his book Conspiracies. Okay, because as he sees it, there's three rings going around. And actually, if you want to include the CIA, there might be four. All right. Okay. He sees it as three rings. Okay. One of them, the outermost ring, would be the FBI. The second ring would be the NYPD. And then the third ring would be the Nation of Islam. All right. The FBI is fomenting this. Okay. They're really exasperating the situation, all right? And then what's happening is that the NYPD will forsake Malcolm, not give him the proper uh, protection. And then John Ali will go ahead and organize, okay? Because there it was reported he met with the conspirators, okay? The, uh, either a night before, two nights before the actual assassination. Okay, and that's essentially the way Zach Kondo feels that the conspiracy worked. All right. It seems as if like the, the nation of Islam is essentially the the, the culprit, but it, it's almost as if uh, just as if uh, you know in in the other assassinations or one or two of the other assassinations, the mafia had been used to a certain extent. So I'm, I'm wondering, it's, I mean, is this a, an example? I mean, they, they'll use the mafia or they'll use the Nation of Islam. They'll do anything but actually show their actual hands, if you know what I mean. So what happens now is because of this suspension between Elijah Muhammad and, uh, and Malcolm, which he thought was going to be 90 days, but what happens is he learns that it's not going to be 90 days, all right? It ends up being a kind of indefinite suspension, all right? And the longer it goes on, the longer it goes on, Malcolm now begins to see that Elijah Muhammad is going to use this as an excuse to marginalize him completely within the nation of Islam, all right? And what else is going to happen is that Malcolm perceives that Elijah Muhammad is going to use this as a way to threaten Malcolm, all right, to make him an antagonist to himself, all right? Now, the other thing that happens is 
once Malcolm begins to perceive that he's being threatened, all right, it he decides to go ahead and split off to the Nation of Islam, all right? And this is in March of 1964, all right? And so the Nation of Islam now begins eviction notices against, against him, uh, Malcolm, and his home in New York City, all right? So now it's pretty clear what's going to happen. And so Malcolm now decides to begin his own mosque in New York City, okay, called the Muslim Mosque, all right? And something else very important happens here is that in founding his own mosque, Malcolm now begins to change his approach. Because remember, I talked to you about he, he did not like the fact the Nation of Islam did not practice any kind of outreach or, you know, activism. Yeah. Well, Malcolm now decides to do this, except his approach is going to be, he wants to transform civil rights into human rights, okay? And he wants to try and unite the black Americans in the United States with Africa, okay? And their cause is our cause, and our cause is their cause, because we can help Africa be free if we can, can take control of stronger roles here in the United States, and we can help each other. They can help us, because what we can do is we can take our case and try it in the United Nations, okay, in the General Assembly, all right? And, and we can go ahead and condemn the United States and make them look like South Africa, Okay, <laughs> all right, so, so Malcolm now begins to get these very strong internationalist kind of ideas, all right? Now, what this is, and he actually has a meeting with King in March of 1964. This is when the Civil Rights Bill is being filibustered in Congress, all right? And this, this will go on, by the way, the filibuster of the Civil Rights Bill will go on for three more months, three or four more months, all right? And so what happens is that they meet and King seems very interested in what Malcolm is doing with the United Nations. He thinks that it's a very, very good idea, all right? And... A very, very important thing happens at this time. I think it's on the same day or within 24 hours. John Ali brings Malcolm's brother into Chicago from Lansing, Michigan, to read a speech condemning Malcolm on the Chicago radio station. All right. Now, if Malcolm didn't understand who John Ali was before this, I'm sure as heck he understands who he is now. Because according to Malcolm's brother, what they did is they yanked him in front of a microphone, put a piece of paper in front of his face, 
okay, and told him to read it right then and there. So in other words, he was, he was being used as a kind of stage prop, okay? All right. Now, also, what happens is that Malcolm now goes ahead, another very important point, he goes ahead and makes a journey to Mecca, okay? He decides to go ahead and make a pilgr pilgrimage to Mecca, all right? And what happens is he's very impressed by the wide range of people that he meets there, okay? And of different races, of different colors, etc. So this is now another point in which Malcolm begins to see that black nationalism might not be the way to counter this problem, that maybe we can reach out to other people, all right? Maybe we can go ahead and forge alliances, okay? All right, maybe the white people aren't all the devils, okay? Which had been the, the philosophy of the nation of Islam. That was James Eugenio, a historian and researcher, speaking from his home in Burbank, California, on the assassination of Malcolm X in February of 1965. The topic is part four of a summer series airing on the Global Research News Hour, a show funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. The show is also broadcast on other community radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. My name is Michael Welch. Here again is more of our conversation. You're speaking about uh, Malcolm X and, and, and King. They, they were both very prominent uh, spokespeople or, or representatives of a movement, but this is a different approach from King. I mean, he, he didn't advocate nonviolence, Malcolm X, and he also reached out to world leaders, particularly in Africa, and internationalized, as you say, the African-American struggle. And, and I see that, how, how that could be a threat. You know, right, just as, right, a, right. as a, I mean, I'm wondering if uh, the, the two struggles, you basically have two struggles with the government simultaneously, right? I mean, internally among the black people, but also abroad. Um, right. I wonder if you could, maybe as an aside, could you, it doesn't seem as if that principle is, 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 is working anymore. I mean, they still seem to be separate, if you know what I mean, right? So, I mean, well, what? What, why, would, why would it be like that? See, King's approach was mostly confined to the United States, all right? Whereas Malcolm's idea was to make it a kind of international kind of an issue, all right? And I, you, you, can, you can bet that the FBI and Jagger Hoover was really worried about these two guys getting together, Okay. <laughs> They began to see that, wait, wait a minute, hold it, hold it. We might have two black messiahs on our hands and they might get together and form a union. And what are we going to do then? All right. And so, but, but also is the fact that as we'll see, as I go ahead in the story, all right, that when, when Malcolm begins to make these journeys abroad and he meets with Fasal of, uh, of Saudi Arabia 
and he meets with Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt, you know, the CIA now begins to take notice of what he's doing there. All right. And this and this gets very interesting later. OK, well, which which we'll talk about as this story progresses. All right. And also he meets with uh, Nkrumah of Ghana, who was one of the leading uh, anti-imperialists in Africa at that time. It was a great favorite of John F. Kennedy. There was a mutual admiration society between the two, Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana and John F. Kennedy. All right. Now, he also, it's really kind of interesting because he also goes to Lebanon, Nigeria, Algeria, meets Ben Bella, Morocco, Senegal, Liberia, and the New York Times starts writing about this stuff. You know, what the heck is this guy doing? All right. Okay. And they begin to see, they begin to see what he's doing. What Malcolm is doing is bringing the support of all of these African nations so he can organize a petition before the General Assembly. Okay. There's two divisions in the United Nations. There's what you call the Security Council, and there's what you call the General Assembly. The Security Council is the big, you know, the big 13 countries, all right, like the United States, okay, France, Germany, et cetera. And then there's a General Assembly, which is all the rest of the, of the uh, people there, the nations there. Malcolm understood he wasn't going to penetrate into the Security Council, okay, but he also understood that the General Assembly was a place where he could do something with this. And, and that's why he's visiting all of these countries. Like Dag Hammarskjöld, who unfortunately was dead at this time, but Dag Hammarskjöld had set up the General Assembly as to be a kind of home for the powerless, for the dispossessed, the people who didn't have very strong voices that's how he looked at the General Assembly. All right. Okay. And this is what Malcolm is doing. All right. Now. It seems as if he had the same kind of role or was going towards the same kind of role as somebody like Castro did, right? Because he too was going out to all these different areas that, that you just mentioned and uh, he was you know, unifying people in that department as well, it seems so. And, and Che Guevara. Che, che Guevara, Guevara had the yes. same idea. When All right. Assassinated. Now, when when Malcolm gets back, the New York Police Department decides that we have to infiltrate Malcolm's movement. Okay, and they do through their secret intelligence group, which was called Bossy, which was led by a guy named Tony Ulasiewicz. Okay, Tony Ulasiewicz became later famous when he went to work for the Nixon White House and he got involved in Watergate, all right? But at this time, of course, he's working for the New York Intelligence Department and he hires a guy named Gene Roberts to be his chief infiltrator into Malcolm's camp. Okay, 
And so now what you have now, you have these reports because, of course, I'm sure most of your listeners know the the FBI has relationships with all major police departments in the United States. It's a kind of give and take between them. The FBI gives them their technical services, all right, which most police departments don't have, all right, not as good as the FBI does. And then in return, they get intelligence reports. And so, of course, what happens is Bossy now begins to share the reports in an interdepartmental group with the FBI, all right? Now, what happens next in May of 1964, there's a friendly debate in Chicago between Lomax, okay, and Malcolm X, all right? Lomax immediately recognizes that John Ali was there, okay? Pretty close up to the front of the gallery, okay? Watching the debate. And he gets worried because it's really strange. Lewis Lomax wrote an article in a magazine, which I can't recall the name of the magazine. He had exposed Ali. He called him a former FBI agent. And the FBI, this drove the FBI batty. Okay, this guy's exposing our guy in the Chicago Nation of Islam headquarters. All right. And this is why I think that John Ali was there to give the message to Lomax, you better not ever do that again. And the FBI actually tried to get Lomax to retract the statement, but he wouldn't, all right? So now that speech that night in Chicago, most people who were there said that this was not the Malcolm X of 1961 and 1962, okay? This was a different Malcolm X, all right? Uh, he was much more amenable to making alliances with other groups, with other peoples, et cetera. This was not the militant, okay, by any means necessary. It wasn't that kind of a guy, all right? And what's inter also interesting about this is that Lomax and Malcolm decided to go ahead and ask the Chicago police to be escorted to their cars, all right? Because they were worried because John Ali was there, all right? Okay, now something else also happens around this time in May of 1964. There now begins to be a meeting between certain people in the Newark Mosque the Newark, New Jersey mosque. And a guy named Talmadge here, who's a member of that mosque, meets with a couple of other people. And they tell him the word has come down that Malcolm is now a danger to the nation of Islam and 
people in the higher rankings would prefer that he be eliminated. All right. So what you have now is John Ali and the FBI essentially surveilling Malcolm X. All right. At the same time, you have on the lower level the beginning of the organization of a plot against him. All right. Now, at the same time, the eviction proceedings are now going on between Elijah Muhammad and and the New York the the, the, the uh, New York legal court to go ahead and get rid of Malcolm out of the house that he had been living on. All right. He also, also the FBI ratchets it up. They now start making phone calls to Elijah Muhammad, saying a guy impersonating Malcolm's voice, all right, you know, and making these threatening moves during this eviction uh, proceeding, all right. So Malcolm lost the, evic the formal eviction proceeding uh, court hearing, but he decided to appeal. So the appeal drags on for another year. All right. King's lawyer in the meantime, Clarence Jones, King's lawyer, leaves a phone call for Malcolm. He wants to know how the movement in the UN is going, which means he's very interested now in getting this declaration in the and, and by the way, and you can bet that that phone call was tapped by the FBI. Okay, by this time in 1964, the summer of 1964. All right. King is interested in putting the United States on trial in the UN. All right. At this time, Malcolm now organizes what's called the OAAU, the Organization for African American Unity, which is a complementary group to the OAU the organization of African unity that I think Kwame Nkrumah began in, in, in Africa. So he now begins this group, the OAU, as a complement to the much larger group. And, and this, is, this is very symbolic, okay, of how Malcolm sees the two groups working together you know, as an, a, a base in Africa that he will go ahead and be their subsidiary in the United States. So it really looks like Malcolm's making progress here, all right? And he now also begins to start preaching about this outreach he wants to do, bringing more and more people into the OAAU to work for this goal, right? Now, he begins, he begins to report on these threats to him, that there's a car outside of his house with people from the Fruit of Islam, okay, in the car. He reports it to the New York Police Department. What happens here is very important and very interesting. The New York Police Department now begins 
to a campaign to say there really wasn't any threat. Malcolm is trying to promote his new organization, the OAAU, and his new Muslim mosque. So this, that, this is a very important development because it looks like Bossy now is going to go ahead and ignore this series of threats that's going on against Malcolm. And so, as Zach Kondo says, you know, this is the middle level that's going to allow the inner level, okay, to, to go ahead and succeed, all right? And this is going to go on, by the way. This is going to go on for the next seven months until he's actually killed. Yeah. Now, in July, Malcolm makes a journey to Africa, which lasts for four months, okay? When he departs, John Ali makes a speech, okay, saying that anybody who threatens Elijah Muhammad must be dealt with, okay? At the first stop on this journey, something very interesting happens. He meets up with Nasser in Cairo, and Nasser has this splendid dinner for Malcolm. Malcolm is poisoned at this meeting, at this dinner. And he says that he recognizes the guy who served him the meal. All right. And the guy, when, when they went to find him, he'd vanished. He left. All right. So he's been thrown out in the United States. Well, that's what that's what Malcolm thought that it was. Okay. Somebody is trailing him. Okay. And they're trying to get rid of him. All right. And he says now, the nation of Islam could not do something like that. Somebody else, you know, is after me. <laughs> All right. He makes a very powerful speech saying that the Africans in Africa should unite, okay, with the Africans in the United States. All right. And he's and the court, the whole point of this journey is to go ahead and make an even stronger push for the resolution in the United Nations, all right? So there's four months, four months, Malcolm is, Malcolm is over there, crisscrossing Africa, meeting with Nasser, meeting with Nkrumah, meeting with Kenyatta of Kenya, meeting with Ben Bella of Algeria. Something else very interesting happens when he tries to get into France, okay? France refuses to allow him into the country, okay? And everybody's puzzled by this. You know, well, wait a minute. Why, why are you not allowing, you know, France? Why is France not allowing Malcolm into the country? It turns out that Charles de Gaulle heard about another plot 
like was in Cairo, his intelligence agency had heard about a plot to kill Malcolm in France. And it turns out that's the reason that he did not want Malcolm, because he didn't want Malcolm to meet his death on French territory. All right. And it turns out that Dean Rusk, the Secretary of State, through his assistant, a guy named Benjamin Reed, had put out feelers in the CIA that they wanted Malcolm tailed. Okay. Because, of course, it would be Dean Rusk who would have to defend against any declaration in the United Nations, you know, against the United States. Right. So that would be a logical reason, you know, why he would do such a thing. James, I, I sort of hate to, to interrupt, but we're running a little bit short on time. I mean, could you maybe bring us a little bit closer to the uh, Oh, okay, fine, date? fine. Now, we have to mention the firebombing. Okay, there's a firebombing of Malcolm's home, all right? And what happens is, again, the NYPD blames this somehow on Malcolm, that this was another stunt that he pulled for publicity okay which it was not okay it was actually a plot okay to get him out of the place then of course what happens is in february of 1965 there's an fbi report that john ali met with some of the people who were going to go ahead and pull off the assassination plot against Malcolm. Gene Roberts thought that he had seen a rehearsal of this plot a couple of nights before where there would be a diversion, okay, made by a smoke bomb while the assassins then got a hold of their shotguns pulled up. Because if you can believe it, there was no searches done. That's right. At the door. Yeah. There was no searches done at the Audubon ballroom. Okay. And it, what's incredible about this is that the NYPD was like a block away. Yeah. There was a, they were like a block away. Knowing all these reports, knowing what Gene Roberts is saying, they're a block away. And there's no police there doing any frisks or anything like that. All right. And so the plot is pulled off exactly that way, exactly the way Gene Roberts reported it was going to happen. There was going to be a diversionary tactic and three guys were going to go ahead and assault the stage. And that's how Malcolm X was killed. All right. It was, it was a combination of, as uh, Zach Kondo says, a kind of three layered circles on top of each other. All right. And, Malcolm X was, of course, a goner. Now, only one of the assassins is caught, Talmadge Hare. Yeah. Okay. Talmadge Hare said at the trial, because they had so much evidence on him that there was no way he was going to get away, all right, that he didn't know who the two other guys were. But it's not true. The guy, a guy named Butler was there. There's a film on Carl Evans's site in which he can show you 
that Butler was there at the scene and there's a film of him at near the stage uh, making sure that Malcolm X was dead. All right. So as they say, that's the second assassination of the 1960s. Wow. All right. Yeah. All right. You know, you had JFK. Now you have Malcolm X in 1965. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I know that uh, the, the Gene Roberts that you mentioned, uh, was he kind of, he, he sounds similar to the Merrill McCart- McCulloch in the, in the King. Yeah. Role, see, so some people make that comparison between Roberts and McCullough because McCullough was on the scene of the, of the King case. But I see Roberts as a much more conflicted character than, than McCullough, than Meryl McCullough. Okay. I mean, Meryl McCullough, I think was doing an assignment. Okay. That he was carried out to do. I think Roberts is, is a much more conflicted character with what he's doing there. Okay. I, I, I think that he really wanted to prevent, you know, what was going to happen to Malcolm that night. I, I really don't see that from, from Meryl McCullough. Okay. And, and I, I know I'm, I know I'm saying some kind of uh, explosive things here, but that's <laughs> that when you study those cases, these are the kind of things that, you know, you discover through the research of other people and myself, you know, these are the kind of things you end up with, you know, that Meryl McCullough was an undercover agent. All right. And then he went on to a long career in the CIA. All right. For about, you know, about 20 odd some years. And Meryl McCullough is a guy who's pointing out what many people believe is the wrong direction (laughs) for the shots. Okay, that were that were that was killing King. It was Meryl McCullough's group, the invaders, who caused a disturbance that caused King to come back. I think Roberts, myself personally, from what I've read about him, you know, I believe he he liked Malcolm X. I believe that he really kind of did not want to see happen what actually happened. All right, but he was just caught in this machine you know, between Bossy and the NYPD and the FBI. Okay. We've got just a, maybe a few minutes left. I'll, I'll ask you this question in the broader scheme, uh, because in January of 2019, uh, a group of 60 prominent U.S. citizens called upon Congress to reopen the investigations of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, Senator Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X. And it's been argued that the necessity of the investigation is underscored by recent events, you know, the, the near, notably the, the near-fascist takeover of the United States uh, by Donald Trump and, and the January 2021 Capitol riot, which may have instigated by may have been instigated by agent pro- provocateurs. So, so the call to reopen the cases uh, has been renewed. So, uh, of course, th- there's also the release of the new JFK movie, uh, as you know. Uh, so, in, in summary, then, do you feel these truly, uh, there's going to be a, a revitalized wish to, to get the dirt, the, the true dirt on, on the, those crimes now? And, or are we headed for a repeat of the 1978 House Select Committees on Assassinations? What do you think? I, I'm I'm aware of uh, of the group you're talking about because I was one of the people who signed who signed their petition. Okay. 
there, the, the problem you have here, and, and I think it's good that JFK Revisited is coming out at this time, hopefully in the United States, because that will push for the last documents coming out on the JFK case. What's so disappointing is that there has not been a common push for these other three cases, you know, for the Malcolm case, for the King case, for the Robert Kennedy case. We, we don't have the database that we have on the John F. Kennedy case for these other three cases. The work that's been done on those three cases has been done in spite of this work that, we, that needs to be done with the declassification process. In my opinion, Congress is not the place to open an investigation of these, because they're simply too controversial. They're too political. But Congress is the place you can go to to try and get a declassification of all the documents that the CIA and the FBI and the NSA have and military intelligence, okay, on those three cases. And that's what we really need. That's what we really need. If we're ever going to have a truth and reconciliation like they did in South Africa, okay, then that's what needs to be done. You know, you, you know, as, as many people have said, you know, democracy does not work unless you have visibility and transparency. You know, people can't live in a democracy. They don't know their true history. And that's what I believe should happen. You know, will it happen? Maybe, maybe not. Okay, but that's what we should be trying for. Okay, and uh, just about 30 seconds, uh, Kennedy's and King is, is a particularly vital resource for probing the investigations. What can listeners do to enhance this work and keep it going? All right, uh, kennysandking.com is a website that me and uh, my two webmasters run, okay? And we run reviews, we run articles, we run news notices to keep up on those four assassinations. And you can actually contribute there Okay, because we're trying to expand our, you know, our scope out into cyberspace. So that that's that's what you can do as far as uh, as far as Kennedy's and King goes. You know, and uh, you know, you if, if you want to keep up on these cases, I don't mind saying that that's the place to go to. That's the end place to go to. Yeah, I don't mind saying it either. Thank you so much, James DiEugenio. It's been great uh, having you for the last four weeks, and uh, I wish you well going forward, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Okay, Mike. That was James DiEugenio, California-based historian and researcher speaking on the assassination of Malcolm X. You've been tuned to the Global Research News Hour, a show funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio stations CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nehiyawak and Minnakota. The show airs on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on our show, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Music for this week's broadcast is Shifting Sands by Purple Planet Music, accessible on the site purple-planet.com. I've been your host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.